Hello, everybody. Welcome to the third episode of the Manor Podcast. I'm your co-host, Roger Bodie, joined, as always, by my best friend and other co-host, Michael Hamilton. How are you doing today, Mike? You know, I really liked your answer last week, so I'm going to steal it. I'm doing peachy. Oh, no, I have no more adjectives to define how I am if you ask me now, so I, I hope you don't. Oh, uh, okay. So what's our episode about today? A sunset for Chain and Starvo, now that they are about to living legend out of the game. They have both dominated the metagame in their own respective ways, leading to bannings and suspensions. So Mike and I are going to discuss what their overall impact has been on the metagame, what their overall designs were as heroes, and what vacuums will be created now that they'll be gone in the metagame. What heroes do we think could potentially rise up and take their place, if any? So where do you want to start off today, Michael? Do you want to start off with Chain or Bravo, star of the show? Let's start off with Chain. He came first, and he earned a lot of his Living Legend points before Starvo even existed. To kick us off, do you want to go over what Chain Bound by Shadows hero ability was? Yeah, so Chain Bound by Shadows was a Shadow Runeblade, and once per turn, he could use his ability to create a Soul Shackle and give his next Runeblade or Shadow action go again. And Soul Shackle was an aura token that says, the start of your action phase, banish the top card of your deck. And the way chain works is you build up these soul shackles and then you banish cards to the top of your deck each turn. And a lot of the cards have an ability called blood debt, which means if they're in, you're banished and at the end of your turn, you're going to take one damage. Well, this all sounds like downside so far. The more important part of these cards is they all had this ability that you could play them from your banish zone. Uh, some of them had conditions, like you have to play a non-attack action first, but they all had that in common that you could just play them from your banish zone. So a lot of Chain's power came from playing five, six, even seven or eight card hands, depending on what is in his banish zone, even more at some points. And as you would guess, playing or just getting extra cards in your hand every turn is a very powerful tool. Especially in a game like Flesh and Blood, where card draw and gaining extra resources is not something that we've seen a lot of in this game overall. You think of something like Tome of Findal or Tome of Harvest, where they both have high costs and they're only getting you up maybe back to even or up one card for a large resource and or being talented in Tome of Harvest's case. So seeing ways to get card advantage in this game is not something that I believe any other hero can do as well as Chain Bound by Shadow. So from day one, once we learned how to play Flesh and Blood together on that faithful day with the Monarch Blitzdecks, you and I both pretty much were on the same page. Identifying Chain's hero ability and play patterns were pretty much mechanically busted. (laughs) Yeah, I remember it was our second game. We pulled out the Chain deck and we started flipping over these Banish cards that you could play from Banish, and we're like, yep, that's very powerful. And we thought he would probably be very strong. Did not realize he was the strongest character in the game and would be for most of the time he was legal. But hey, we did identify him quickly as very powerful. Right, and it goes back to what I was saying, which is the inherent advantage in having access to more resources fundamentally than any other hero in the game at the moment. Flesh and Blood is such a unique game where there's this awkward tension between using your hand for offense and defense with usually four to five cards, depending on whether or not you have access to an arsenal. And usually your arsenal can only be used defensively when there's a defense reaction in there. This allows Chain to use his hands more flexibly 
allowing him to block with one or two cards, keep one or two blues, knowing that potentially he's going to have access to extra offensive resources just from his banish zone at the start of his turn. And that's the other thing that's very important about this, is that the timing of which these banishes occur. Normally, every other hero in the game also only gains access to the resources at the end of their turn. And Chain would function much, much differently and much, much worse, obviously, because of the blood debt at that point, where if he was getting these banishes at the end of the turn as opposed to the start of his turn. So both the amount and the timing of his access to these additional resources is very unique in Flesh and Blood. Yeah, for most heroes, when they first draw their hand at the end of their turn, they get to plan out their next turn and have full, perfect information about what their next turn is going to look like when they do their blocks. Chain, on the other hand, has to make hedges on his turn, or hedges with his blocks, because he won't know what tools he has access to on his turn. Or you might feel like you're forced to keep an extra attack in your hand, or keep an attack in your hand, but then if you banish multiple attacks, you might not even be able to use the one you kept. But that also gets around to the other point where the rate as which he banishes cards off the top towards the end of the game when he's getting into soul cycle six seven eight that usually means that you're also getting into your second cycle of your deck much faster so there are going to be a lot of instances where shane does know exactly or sorry good chain players <laughs> will know exactly what cards that are about to hit off their banishes they know well i pitched this card two turns ago there are 60 cards in my deck i banished 15 cards I know that it's whatever. I'm not a good chain player, as I'm demonstrating in this example, but hopefully the overall point is coming across cleanly, where uh, good chain players such as Michael Hamilton, piloting the deck in the Pro Tour, was usually aware of when he was going to hit his second cycle and pitch stacks to know exactly when and what he was going to banish on those pivotal last turns of the game. Yeah, and that's one thing that makes chain very unique compared to a lot of other aggressive heroes. And for most aggressive heroes, when they're playing against other reasonably aggressive heroes, they don't get back to their second cycle. But Chain often did, even against more aggressive decks, because he was happy to block a reasonable amount, or depending on the build, you could be happy to block a reasonable amount in the early game. And then once you get back to that second cycle where you know what you're going to banish and you can set it up so you draw multiple blues and you banish several blood deck cards, that was really powerful and because he's banishing so many extra cards he gets back to a second cycle around turn seven or eight and most heroes it takes a lot more than eight turns to get back to their second half of their or get back to the second cycle of their deck and so we've discussed now just a really high level his strategy his mechanics and what's pushed him to a certain degree of power level up to this point so hopefully lss didn't give him any good equipment to also push him over the top to have good defensive values or extra resources on top of these busted card advantage mechanics. Were there any good equipment that Chain had access to that no other hero really had access to at this point in the game? It's arguable that Chain had the best equipment in the game at every point he was legal. When he first came out in Monarch, he had access to Carrion Husk, which is a shadow chess piece that blocks for six. Blocks for six? Six is so much more than any other equipment in the game is blocked for. It does have the downside that it has blood debt, and once you've blocked with it at the end of that combat chain, it'll get banished. So once you've used it, you're going to start taking damage every turn. But blocking for six is such a huge amount, and you can save it till you're near the end of the game, and then block for six to stop either just six damage or potentially some strong on hits, or as, you see, as we saw in the Starvo meta, you could do both with it a lot. Ultimately, even the downside of the card where it automatically becomes banished at 
life threshold 13 and below at the start of your turn. It was always easy to mitigate that, quote, downside, unquote, because once a chain player gets around that 14 to 20 life total, they'll just block any old attack with it and still get a decent amount of value out of it. Even if you're only blocking a 3 to 4 to 5 power attack and just soaking up some damage, once you're at that low of a life total, just getting that extra block for free, essentially, moving into what are going to be your most powerful turns of the game where you're going to need the most amount of resources from both your banish zone and hand is, as we saw, incredibly powerful. Yeah, speaking specifically about matchups, if you look at some of the disruptive aggressive heroes like Lexi and like Starvo and even old Bravo showstopper, these are heroes that would want to play a very threatening on hit on one of Chain's late shackle turns to prevent him from being able to essentially play six or seven cards from Vanish. And having access to this carrying husk just lets Chain easily cover up that threatening on hit and still play with all of his cards. So giving that powerful of a chess piece equipment to this hero that is setting up to have a big powerful turn later on in the game, it just very much covered up one of the vulnerabilities that would normally be in this strategy. And specifically when we're looking at Guardian, a more controlling strategy who should theoretically have a much better matchup than other decks due to their ability to block very efficiently, have access to equipment that blocks very efficiently, and have these on-hit effects that are very disruptive to chain. If we look at a card like Spinal Crush, that card needs to deal 4 or more damage and has 9 base power. So even if all you block with is Carrion Husk off of the Spinal Crush, you're still only taking the 3 damage, so sort of getting pummeled or some other ways to pump that effect, you're still just cleanly getting away from that disruptive effect with one card, which really also speaks to how dynamic and how powerful of a defensive tool Husk is in those key spots. He also had arguably the best gloves in the game at the time, and still, Grasp of the Ark Knight. They are a two-block battle-worn gloves, so they block for two, and then they block for one, and then they stay around so you can keep using them even after you've blocked with them twice. And they have an ability for two resources. You can make a rune chant, and it has go again. And uh, it costs one more for each rune chant you have. But Chain doesn't usually make many rune chants, so that part of the text isn't super relevant. But the biggest thing that this does for Chain is that on turns where he is not threatening damage, he could activate this ability to make a rune chant and put two blood debt red cards on the bottom of his deck. Uh, this is very common for Chain to do on turn zero. And then that just sets him up to have two very powerful red cards uh, on his shackle seven or shackle eight turn when he gets back to his second cycle. Right, that's the biggest upside to grasp of the Arknight to me every time I've played the card where that ability to on the play pseudo mulligan or filter your hand without allowing your opponent to filter the, your, their hand as well is incredibly powerful. It allows you to set up your own situations and play patterns for turns two, three potentially while saving this point of arcane damage which is always intrinsically difficult to deal with in some way or another for decks between the split physical and arcane damage that's inherent to all rune blades just shows why grasp of the arc knight has been so dominant and always played in basically every single rune blade list since it's been printed another powerful interaction with chain specifically that this these gloves have is as i was saying earlier with chain you do not know what cards you're going to banish at the start of your turn so oftentimes you'll keep two blues to plan to pay for whatever you banish. And having a way to convert two resources into this one damage off a rune chant, even the times that you don't hit your blood debt, you're still able to 
convert those resources into something. And without having access to the Grasp of the Arknight, if you held two blues, you might not be able to even spend that extra resources. And just being able to convert two extra resources into damage is very good when you have that uncertainty going into your turn. So we've covered chest and gloves. Hopefully there's no other busted piece of equipment that this class has access to. Well, when Shane first got printed, the rest of his equipment wasn't particularly great. He was just playing Skullcap and he was playing Snapdragon Scalers and his weapon wasn't anything special. But then we moved on to Tales of Aria and they printed another Runeblade, Briar, and she came with two new pieces of powerful equipment. Would you like to talk about Rosetta Thorn or Spellbound Creepers first? Let's start with Spellbound Creepers. Okay, so first are the Boots Spellbound Creepers, and they say, Once per turn instant, you can put a bind counter on Spellbound Creepers. You may play your next non-attack action card this turn as though it were an instant. Activate this ability only if you've attacked or defended with an attack action card this turn. At the beginning of your end phase, destroy Spellbound Creepers unless you have dealt arcane damage this turn equal to or greater than the number of bind counters on Spellbound Creepers. So, the way this card would work is, once you've played an attack, you could activate the Boots and put a bind counter on them, and that let you play your next non-attack action as an instant. And the most common use of this was you could play a non-attack action as an instant that had go again on it, and then you'd play it as an instant so it would not spend an action point to play it, but the go again on the non-attack action would still give you an action point as the card resolved. So you could basically use this to either stack action points and have two action points at times in your turn, or you could use it, you could activate the boots after you'd already spent your action point to refresh it. So what this essentially did is allow Chain to stack these action points at instant speed so that he doesn't have to break the combat chain. And why this was particularly important after Tales of Aria also was because of the introduction of more blocking equipment overall that could be reused, such as Rampart of the Ram's Head, which is a shield that Guardians have access to that allows you to pay a resource to push its defensive value by one. And every time the combat chain is broken, they can once again re-block with that shield, pay another resource into it, and increase its block value and get more and more defensive capabilities and damage mitigation out of it the more times that combat chain is broken. We see that also against Illusionist with Phantasmal Footsteps, where even though they can't keep putting more resources into it, their ability to block with it, pay the resource, if the combat chain's broken, they can once again block with that piece of equipment to get two block out of one piece of equipment for free if the combat chain is broken. So allowing Runeblades to stack these action points at instant speed without breaking the combat chain allowed them to push more damage without allowing other classes the same defensive capabilities that they might have otherwise had access to. On top of that, these boots stayed around for multiple turns. Once you'd used them once, the condition to keep them around was you needed to deal one arcane damage, which, as we talked about earlier, Grasp of the Arc Knight is a great way to threaten one arcane damage. And now we can also move into the new weapon that Briar brought when she joined which is Rosetta Thorn. Rosetta Thorn is a two-handed room blade weapon that allows you to pay one resource to swing for two physical damage. However, it has an additional ability where if you have played both an attack and a non-attack action, it will deal two arcane damage to target player. So Rosetta Thorn is, I don't even think arguably at this point, it just is the de facto best weapon in the entire game at the moment, just because of the rate of not only one resource for four damage off of your weapon, but also how powerful that split damage is between physical and arcane and how difficult it is for decks and opponents to mitigate that damage at the same time. Normally, if it was just four physical damage, you could just sink below it and just move on. It would be 
a good rate for one per four still much better than guardians three per four threatening a frostbite but it would still be easier for decks to mitigate that damage output however when you have to commit both physical block cards out of your hand or from your equipment as well as paying two resources to mitigate both instances of the arcane damage while having access to at least arcane barrier two or two instances of arcane barrier one it is really asking a lot of your opponent in order to soak up this damage and even in examples as we saw in the later parts of the metagame where decks were trying to play around rosetta thorn and bring arcane barrier two plus if Chain really wanted to keep his boots around, he still had the option to, bizarrely, shoot himself with his own arcane damage, because once Spellbound Creepers checks at the end of the turn, all it cares about is that the arcane damage was dealt. It doesn't care that it was dealt to your opponent. So if Chain was committed to keeping these Spellbound Creepers around for another turn to get more instant speed ways to get going and generate action points, he always had the option to just hit his own stupid face with his Rosetta Thorn. Yeah, and that mostly came up against the fatigue decks that were trying to entirely run you out of cards. But it did come up, and it was just another option in Chain's toolkits to go with all these powerful equipment. Right, and that kind of brings me back to what strategies were often employed to beat this deck. How did anyone ever beat this deluge of resources, damage, cards, and value in a long game? And the answer was that Dex just had to wait for Shane to essentially beat himself. Since he was banishing cards and not just discarding them or pitching them, once they were used, they are spent resources, and the strategy became, as you said, just fatigue him. Wait for him to just run out of cards and then beat him from there once he had no more cards left in his deck to banish or gain access to. And that was really the main strategy people ever used to beat this deck. As we saw with Tyler Horsepool in the first calling, he didn't kill Chain with damage or trying to outrace him or value him with these heralds. He just blocked, 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 and played key Arclight Sentinels and Snags to disrupt the chain enough for the chain to just run out of resources and lose the game from there. That was probably the most common way decks fought chain. The other option, though, was basically trying to race the chain player. We saw this mostly back when Briar was the best deck, or one of the best decks, and she had her plunder runs legal and ball lightnings. And the goal there is basically that if you kill chain before he gets to his mid to high shackle levels, he's not actually gaining that many cards. So if the game goes on for four turns, then he only gets three shackles and he'll only banish a few cards. When he's only banishing a few cards, a lot of the blood deck cards from hand, if you play them from hand, they're slightly below rate and definitely not impressive cards overall. So if you can kill Shade before he can get to those higher shackles, then that stops him from doing what he's trying to do. Not to get too far in the weeds in the metagame though, I still think that we saw Chain do reasonably well in the Briar meta. I believe one top eight of the Orlando Calling, at least, at least one. And at that point, there was a lot of pessimism around Shane as well because he had just gone through one of the first bannings at the time now suspension in Seeds of Agony. So we saw not only just Chain still be able to still play and hang with these Briars, so to speak, if he still had access to Seeds of Agony at that time, I still feel that he would have been able to keep up with Briar's pace, no problem. And I guess this is speculating a little bit on my point, but it still would have been questionable to know whether or not Briar was even favored at all in that matchup at that point. Even without Seeds, it's not clear that Briar was favored in that matchup. The Briar deck really took off after Matt Folks won the UK Nationals, 
and Chain wasn't really getting the, the attention that he probably deserved. I believe he also made top four of nationals. It's just so hard to actually be aggressive and outrace Chain, and it took Briar's ability to not only play this insane offensive game that she had at the time, but as well as being able to block for four, five, six off of all these on hit triggers she was getting defensively when she needed to as well in order to mitigate that. And we saw once she was errata to have less defensive capabilities as well as her post banning, she fell off the cliff a lot faster in terms of metagame performance than Chain did. Yeah, Chain losing seeds was a pretty big deal because when he had Seeds of Agony, he could set up these really, really powerful late games with a combination of Seeds of Agony and Riftbind, where you'd stack your pitch so that you'd banish multiple Seeds of Agony and two Riftbinds. And at the end of the game, you could play several Seeds of Agony and then play two Riftbinds, and each Riftbind would be pumped from all those Seeds of Agony you played. And it would just, Chain could come in for tons of damage with a pretty simple pitch stack of just the Seeds and the Riftbinds. And after Seeds of Agony was banned, he still had powerful endgame tools, and we saw decks move away from this Seeds of Agony rift bind combo more towards creating Ursers off of Eclipse. So do you want to talk about how Ursers were created at the end of the game? Yeah, so Eclipse was a blue card that did not have blood debt, but you could play it from your banish zone. Its only condition for playing it was that you had played six or more cards with blood debt this turn. And when you played Eclipse, you summoned Urser, who is a 6-6 shadow demon ally, and Basically, this, as Chain was running out of cards, he got this extra six power attack that he could use every turn until they killed this Urser. And since it is a shadow attack, he was also able to give it go again with his hero ability. And that allowed for situations where Chain actually pseudo-locked some people out of the game just by threatening both the shadow Urser attack into create a rune chance swing Rosetta Thorn. So that's just nine damage a turn, always every turn. And decks aren't always easily able to mitigate that nine damage and then try to find a way to swing back six damage to kill this Urser and get it off the board. So that just created this, like I said, lock where opponents would get to a certain life total threshold, be forced to block with their entire hand, and there was nothing that they could do from the rest of the game. They were just committed to blocking, blocking, and blocking, and eventually dying to this uh, six x powerful ally. Specifically against decks that were at one life or against people that were at one life. And because the nine damage would come across from three different sources, there'd be one source of six damage, one source of one arcane damage, and then one source of two physical damage. That usually ate up four cards to defend that because you need uh, you need to pitch a card to defend the one arcane damage. You need, it takes two cards to block out six damage, and then it takes one more card to block out the two damage attack. So you couldn't even get out of it by drawing three, blo three, three blocks and one other card. You had to have a specific card or a specific way to get out of that block. And even in instances where if you were able to, you know, use a tunic in order to prevent that arcane damage for a turn and keep that fourth card in your hand, that card still has to be able to swing for six damage if you're arsenaling it to kill the Urser. Otherwise, you're just keep spinning your wheels with that one card in your arsenal and still not even out of the lock. Okay, so now we've covered chains, chest, gloves, boots, and sword. What were his most common options for his headpiece? So his headpiece was the only tool that he had that wasn't overly impressive. Most commonly, Chain just ran Arcanite Skullcap, which is kind of the default headpiece. It's a battle-worn hat with one defense, but if you're lower than your opponent, it has plus one defense. It's just fine. It blocks for three over the course of the game, but you can't use it as flexibly as you can use like the Grasp of the Arcanite or the Carrion Husk because you have to be lower than them to get that full value out of it. 
but it was fine. He also would sometimes use Ebonfold. This was mostly used against Fatigue. It is a shadow headpiece that has Spell Void 2, and you could pay one resource and banish a card from your hand, which worked very well with the cards you wanted to play from Banish Zone, especially ones like Riftbind that got extra effects when played from Banish Zone. And if the card he banished is a shadow card, he got to draw a card to replace it. Right, so it just gave him access to an extra source of hand filtering and ability to set up his late game in hands a little bit better. Well, at least he had one area where he's a little bit lacking. So once Shane finishes his time in Classic Constructed and Living Legends out, what decks do you think will take the mantle as the most aggressive deck or what vacuum will be created once he's no longer available to play? So once Shane leaves, there's definitely room for more aggro decks that were specifically aggro decks that were vulnerable to Carrion Husk to show up more in the metagame. If you look at like, Lexi as a deck that is solid, but a lot of times one of her critical on hits would just be blocked by Carrion Husk without Shane having to use cards from his hand. That made what should be theoretically a quite good matchup for Lexi where she has all this ice disruption against a Runeblade that wants to play many attacks every turn into like a reasonable matchup, but not one that's like amazing. And that leaves room for her to show up and kind of pick on any Runeblades that still show up. Since Shane was just so aggressive and just had this inevitability, the decks just usually couldn't handle unless they specifically warped their entire deck to explicitly trying to block, 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 and only fatigue chain. It actually opens the door up to more mid-range style decks, I think. So decks that maybe aren't as good as, you know, being straight aggro decks, but are still able to bring in a more rounded defensive package for these aggressive pack decks that are left these Lexi's, Briars, Viscerai's maybe, uh, Faye, with potentially how she shakes out based on her spoilers so far. And I think that's really healthy for the game overall. I think heroes like maybe like Katsu or Dorinthia could potentially rise up again and can bring these kind of like value mid-range styles where they can reasonably expect to block with one or two cards, swing back their weapons, or get incremental value over the course of a longer game without necessarily having to be committed to explicitly being this fatigue control deck like an Oldheim or a Bravo star of the show. And that's what I'm most excited to see if that kind of shakes out once Chain specifically leaves. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Shane was definitely punishing to the decks that were like middling speeds where they weren't trying to fatigue you, but they weren't trying to end the game as quickly as possible. Shane's just the way that Shane played, how he built up more and more power over turns was very punishing to a strategy like that. And now that Shane's gone, the only hero left in the game that can play Carrion Husk is Levia, and <laughs> she has her own set of issues that need to be sorted out before I think she's anything we need to worry about in a metagame anytime soon. Yeah, poor Latvia. Hopefully she'll get some love in the next supplemental set. Okay, moving on to Bravo Star of the Show. Bravo Star of the Show was the first class constructed hero released in a supplemental set. But I guess I'm getting ahead of myself, Michael. What does Bravo Star of the Show do? Alright, so Bravo Star of the Show is an adult-only hero, and he is an elemental guardian. Starts with 40 health, intellect 4, and... He has the essence of earth, ice, and lightning. So that's already pretty interesting that we have an elemental guardian that only gets earth and ice, and then they printed another one that also gets lightning. You can already kind of like envision if you were playing Oldheim before, you might be interested in Bravo and potentially splashing some of the powerful lightning cards. And then I guess going back to the hero itself, it also has this pretty powerful ability as we came to see over the next few months. At the start of your turn, 
you may reveal an earth card, an ice card, and a lightning card from your hand. And if you do, your first attack this turn that costs three or more resources gains plus two power, it gains go again, and it gains dominate. I remember when this card was first spoiled, running the math, putting numbers and statistics in a spreadsheet and thinking, well, if you're only running 10, 10, and 10 of each of his elemental cards, you're only going to hit this maybe 10 to 15% of the time. It doesn't seem that bad. I didn't anticipate people just going all in, playing all of these mopey elemental cards that didn't necessarily have good rates on their own in order to just push his hero ability to the max every turn. But even then, if you're thinking about Guardian traditionally before Starvo, you're thinking defense. What defensive options is Lightning really bringing to the table? And really, at first glance, I believe what most people were thinking was, well, I guess you could splash Blink to get more action points if you wanted to try to improve the Oldheim Prism matchup that's notoriously one-sided in Prism's favor. Sure, you could have some Lightning cards that also block for three in Heaven's Claws, but it was hard to envision what exactly Lightning was bringing to the table at the time. And still, even in the later builds, the Lightning cards weren't often cast so much as they were just resource cards that just so happened to say Lightning on them. Yeah, I think the strongest too, like Blink, as you said, to fix the Prism matchup. And I think Pulse of Volt Haven is also a pretty powerful card. Just pushing your hammer to that eight damage break point makes it really hard to stop the on-hit Frostbite. And trading a card for four damage is a pretty good rate as well. I remember the first time somebody's played Pulse of Volt Haven and swung their hammer. I was like, oh, what are you doing? Okay, take four. And they're like, no, this is an ice attack because it's an ice hammer. So it gets pumped by Pulse of Volt Haven. And I was like, oh, no and realizing I was taking way more damage and getting that frostbite was just a huge just tempo swing off of a two-card hand that Starvo had access to. <laughs> well, that's kind of Guardian's whole thing, is they have these big, expensive attacks that have pretty powerful, disruptive, either on-hit abilities or crush abilities. Well, what would you think would the best win would be then? What, what's the worst that could happen? Well, at first, I thought it would be Crippling Crush, which is this Bravo specialization. It costs seven, it has 11 power, and if it crushes, then your opponent discards two random cards from their hand. Random cards? Random cards. They don't even get to choose? Nope. If they get hit by this, they discard two random cards. And this did end up seeing a lot of play in the Bravo list. And when you got hit by this card, you would go from having like potentially a pretty good next turn to either having a pretty mediocre one or sometimes just not being able to play the game at all on your next turn because you don't even get to choose which cards. As more and more people listen to this podcast over time, I will keep harping on random discard as the worst mechanic ever put into flesh and blood as a whole. So thankfully, it's just this one card that had random hand rip effects and there weren't any other ones. Well, unfortunately, this wasn't even the best of the random hand rip cards. But how could that be, Michael? Well, there's a card that was printed in Tales of Aria called Oakenold. And this card was pretty strong in Oldheim. It is a three-cost attack, three being the magic number. It has seven power, and it has earth and ice fusion, which means if you reveal an earth and an ice card as you play this card, it gains an extra And effect. what elements did you need to reveal to Starbo? Uh, Earth, Ice, and Lightning. Oh, so you already had those cards in your hand prior to casting this card, so that, that comes in handy. Yeah, and when you fuse this card, it got plus two power, it gained Dominate, which ends up being a little bit redundant with Bravo's ability. But the two, the plus two power stacks with Bravo's, so it goes, it would go up to 11 power. And when it hit a hero, it doesn't matter how much damage it does, as long as it hits, they put two random cards from their hand on the bottom of their deck. 
So not quite discarding, but still could be extremely potent. So that put this up to six total cards in the deck that just ripped two random cards from their opponent's hand? Yes. Wow, that's a lot of ways to just make your opponent not play the game of Flesh and Blood anymore. That is. And there's also a third very impactful disruption effect that Bravo commonly played. Spinal Crush was five cost for nine damage, and if it crushes, or all actions on your opponent's next turn, lose and cannot gain go again. If you dominate this attack and attack with it, your opponent is only able to block with one card from their hand, so they spend one card to block with it, and then they get left with a hand of three cards, but none of their actions can have go again, so they usually have a lot of trouble spending those remaining cards in their hand when they're hit by Exactly. This. And not only that, they can't use their equipment for an instance that has go-again effects on them necessarily or anything like that because nothing can go again. That includes their equipment, activated abilities, non-attack actions, attack actions. The only thing that they could usually do multiple of, which we saw at a prism at times, was play instance. So this deck had several powerful on-hits and a lot of disruption. And so surely, surely it's not going to have good equipment. They it? can't put a hero in the game that has amazing offensive and defensive capabilities on top of Shane, right? We already saw how devastating Shane's ability to play offense with his card pool and then play defense with his busted equipment was. Surely they wouldn't repeat that missing again with Starbo. So Starbo actually came after he had all of his equipment. He, well, that's not true. He brought a very powerful shield. But we'll get to that later. Let's start with his hat, his headpiece, the Crown of Seeds. He gets access to probably the best headpiece in the game. Yeah. So what does Crown of Seeds do? Crown of Seeds is zero block headpiece. So it doesn't block. It, it, it has no defensive value should you choose to block with it. However, it does have this activated ability for one resources. It's an instant. You may put a face down card from your arsenal at the bottom of your library and draw a card. And when you do this, you prevent the next one damage from any source that your hero would take this turn. So this was just a repeatable way for Bravo not only to get some value out of these cards that necessarily didn't block for well, because a lot of these elemental cards, aside from Heaven's Claws, Autumn Touch, and Winter's Grasp, did not have three block on them inherently. So getting the ability to pitch them to get defensive value out of them and filter your hand to find whatever missing element or piece or resource that you're missing was incredibly powerful, as well as allowing Bravo Star of the Show to hit his second cycle faster naturally than other decks will. So once again, we see this element in combat between Bravo and Chain, where they're hitting second cycles and these pitch decks that they're setting up faster than decks normally would be allowed to otherwise. Yeah, and this is especially important because of Bravo's hero ability, where he wants to find hands that have an ice and earth and a lightning card in them. If you were playing a more defensive style of Bravo and using Crown of Seeds a lot, you could very easily set up your deck so that your second cycle, you would have several hands back to back where you'd hit his ability and have the ice, earth, and lightning card. Right, where you pitch a ice card to swing Winter's Whale, Arsenal, earth card, drop your hand again, pitch a lightning card to activate Crown of Seeds, and then you put this earth card on the bottom of your deck, and then at the end of your opponent's turn, this lightning card then goes at the bottom of your deck so now you have set up this three card sweet spot in your deck already that you know about where it's going to be ice earth lightning and all you have to do is not die and hit this second cycle in order to just have these turn after turn after turn effects of these high powered dominate go again attacks okay so we've covered his headpiece what else did he have access to equipment wise so arguably the best generic equipment in the game is Fyandal's Spring Tunic. 
every turn you get to put a counter on it and then at any time you remove three counters from it to create one resource and this was especially potent in combination with the crown of seeds because since crown costs one occasionally it can be awkward to pitch a whole card to use the crown but with this tunic resource on your opponent's turn you can just remove the three counters from tunic to activate the crown of seeds and go into your turn with five cards in your hand yeah that's incredibly powerful especially when you're considering that like you said pitching a whole card out of your hand could oftentimes spew one or two resources if you don't have anywhere else to put them uh, on your opponent's turn so being able to just really efficiently remove these counters on your opponent's turn activate your crown of seeds go into your turn and then at the start of your turn just put that first two counter right back on tunic to start this cycle all over again and efficiently always have a way to dump this resource somewhere was incredibly powerful there were times where you wouldn't necessarily use it right as the hit three if you really valued the card in your arsenal or you thought you would have more use for it on your turn if you're trying to pitch two blues and use the tunic resource to pay for a crippling crush or something like that but very often it just allowed you to just turn through your tunic also faster than other decks normally would be able to yeah, having that ability that costs one resource and is almost always something you're happy to use just meant that your tunic didn't really sit at three counters nearly as often as some other characters had their sit at three counters. What gloves do you normally play? So... The gloves are not particularly impressive, but they're called Crater Fist, and they have Temper, which means when you block with them, they get a minus one counter on them. And if they ever have zero block at that point, then you destroy them. And they start with two block, so you get a two block out of them, and then you get a one block out of them, and then they're destroyed. They do have another ability. You can pay three resources and destroy the Crater Fist to give your first attack this turn with Crush plus two power. And this part of the card was not used very often, mostly because three resources for two damage is not a great rate. And most of the crush cards are expensive enough that it is very hard to play them and have three resources left over. And then on top of that, even if you did have three resources left over, if you had activated Starvo's ability to get go again, it's almost always better to spend those three remaining resources to swing the winner's well for four damage. Ultimately, the most important thing, like you said, was just the fact that this card could block. It just was more defensive value on the equipment sitting around for Bravo Star of the Show to mitigate some damage here or there, maybe more effectively block some potentially disruptive on-hit effects or just save some life at the end of the game. There were many games where I would just sit and watch Michael be at like 10 life and he still just wasn't blocking with Crater's Fist yet. It just not presented, his opponent wasn't presenting anything particularly important with an on-hit trigger. It wasn't lethal damage, so just, just the Crater Fist would sit there and then you just win the game at 5 life with Crater Fist just pristine shiny and new and i was like huh that's certainly one way to use crater fist <laughs> <laughs> it did actually get me in trouble a couple of times where they'd have a big turn at the end where i wish i could block with crater fist twice and for the most part it's better to save your equipment as long as possible but occasionally occasionally you can save them a little bit too long. so now we've covered his head chest and arms and where chain was the weakest in his headpiece but he still had the availability of an incredibly powerful, legendary, generic headpiece. There is no such option for a Bravo Star of the Show. He has to play very mopey, not hyper-efficient, common cards usually as his boots. So what were usually his boot options, Michael? Yeah, so I think the best generic boots in the game is Snapdragon Scalers, which does absolutely nothing if your attacks cost two or more. So he had to play Ironhide Legs. So what do Ironhide Legs do? What does this incredibly powerful common give him the access the ability to? 
So iron hide legs block for zero, but when you block with them, you can pay one resource. And if you do, their defense becomes two and you sacrifice them by the end of the combat. So obviously paying and pitching just a card to just get this block value is an atrocious rate on your opponent's turn and not something that you would be very happy to do most of the time. However, if you are pitching a blue card, you could very often activate Crown of Seeds, use that other resource for a shield that we'll get to in a minute, and then if you needed to, use this third resource to use the boots. So you're still getting a lot more value out of the card you're pitching, given that you're using all one to two to three resources when you're blocking with this card. However, it's still a very mopey effect overall. And then when you played against Rune Blades, you got to replace this card with a Null Rune Boots, which ended up doing basically similar things where you could pitch a blue and prevent one arcane with your boots, but you could do that turn after turn. So it actually helped Bravo in those matchups where they have split damage that he could, he got to basically upgrade his boots because his opponents were threatening arcane damage. So there is one other boots he played, Time Skippers, that's Basically, I play in a lot of decks because, or a lot of Bravo decks, because the Prism matchup can be pretty challenging. And all they do is they let you trade three resources and activate them, and you go plus one action point, so you go up to two action points. And that allowed him to clear out two auras in, the, in one. That game. matchup was still one of Bravo Star of the Show's more challenging matchups, even when he teched with very specific niche equipment like this. So its impact was still dubious at best at times. I think all three pieces of leg equipment were not amazing ever. They were all just fine additions. And it really speaks to the need as a bit of a side note for a good piece of generic legendary boots. It's amazing to me that there are these gaps in equipment still that classes just still don't have access to. It just really creates this huge divide between the classes that do have access to these functional equipment slots and the classes that don't. But that's a, that's a soapbox for another day. So I'll put that one aside for now. So moving on to what he uses with his hands, Guardians introduced something called an offhand. So if you have a one-hand weapon, instead of putting another one-hand weapon in the other hand, you could have an offhand. And that's represented by their shields. And Bravo Star of the Show actually used two shields, both pretty effectively throughout his course of legality in Classic Constructed. Right. We talked about Rampart of the Ram's Head when we were discussing Ching and what its ability was. And this ability to, as I alluded before, also use resources on your opponent's turn to generate defense value. Usually pitch a blue, activate crown of seeds, potentially block with iron hide boots if you needed to that turn or prevent an arcane damage, and then activate rampart of the ram's head in order to block. So just for that one card, you're getting anywhere from three to four damage mitigation with your equipment. And it was just very powerful to have a thing that you could spend your resources on in your opponent's turn when you're wanting to activate Crown of Seeds so often to help filter your hands and find that, that combination of an Earth and Ice and a Lightning card for Bravo's ability. His other shield, Stalagmite, Bastion of Eisenlaw. It was a shield with temper also. So it starts with two block and at the end of each combat chain, if you block with it, it loses one block value. And when you block with it, your opponent gains a frostbite. So the main use of the shield was against opponents that would have specifically rune blades, but it comes up in other spots where they are attacking with a card and they have one resource floating or two resources floating. The amount of 
resources they need to attack with their next thing. And if you can time the stalagmite correctly, you could just completely shut them off from being able to play their next attack or attack with their weapon. And even when you didn't actually use it in the combat chain or it uses defensive value, there's something in card games called the threat of activation where your opponent has to consider their lines and resources and how they're going to play the game if you do decide to block with Bastion that turn and if you don't. So oftentimes just it sitting on the board would force your opponent to play suboptimal resource turns or lines that they might not have preferred to take had it not been on the battlefield where it's hard to see that value at that point then but it's definitely still there where your opponent has to like I said consider well if I attack with my snatch and they block with Bastion or the Stalagmite and I get this rune chant I might not be able to swing Rosetta Thorn at that point so then at that point, your stalagmite's not just blocking that two physical damage from whatever you're deciding to block the snatch in this example. It's also then preventing that two physical two arcane. So it's actually soaking up six damage. You're just not seeing it do that on the battlefield necessarily, but it's still preventing that damage nonetheless. Both shield options were really powerful, and both of them ended up seeing a lot of play. And I think the most famous example of, of just how much Stalagmite can generate defensive value was actually in your finals match against Fino, I believe. You had some key spots where you were able to prevent him from swinging in with multiple four, five, six soul shields where he just didn't have the resources after you blocked with the Stalagmite at a pivotal turn. Yeah, and you wouldn't expect it to be an all-star in the Prism matchup, but it ended up saving me a ton of life in that game. I think that's why a lot of people slept on this card at first, and why I've, I've actually been high on it since it was spoiled, just because of, like I said, the threat of activation and the choke on resources that the damage mitigation can wind up preventing in the long run over the course of that turn. So it's definitely a very, very, very powerful shield piece, and one that definitely gave Bravo Star of the Show and Oldheim kind of win-win situations on their shield piece where both provided insane defensive value just in different ways and were better at different circumstances so moving on to his last piece of equipment it would be his weapon which ended up being a one-handed hammer called winter's whale and winter's whale has the ability you can spend three resources to attack with it it has four power and if you pitch an ice card to activate this ability when it hits your opponent they gain a frost seems powerful yeah, so this would allow some versions of Starvo to play a more defensive game where they would block out with most of their hand and just swing back with a blue ice card and thread four damage with a pretty a pretty relevant on hit. That frostbite can really mess up some hands, and even against the hands that it doesn't do a lot against, it's still just coming in for four damage for a single card and an action point, which is not a bad rate. It's at least putting your opponent on a clock, basically. Additionally, with Bravo's hero power of giving his big, powerful attack go again, you could often just follow up these big, huge guardian attacks or even these big, chunky earth attacks that had dominate and extra power and go again. You would just follow them up with a swing with this winner's whale, which letting you spend the extra resources that you revealed to Bravo. So if you reveal an earth and ice and a lightning card, maybe you pitch the lightning card, attack with the earth card. You'd be left with his ice card left over. And that lets you use the ice card to threaten four more damage and an additional on hit on those turns, which is just another really powerful thing. It essentially sets up the most, you don't get to play the game turn in all of Flesh and Blood, where you reveal blue lightning, uh, blue ice, and whatever other earth card, with your fourth card being Oak and Old. So you pitch the lightning card to play the Oak and Old, 
fuse it with your last ice and earth card. So now you have this 11 power dominate, go again, hand ripping. If it gets one point of damage across, not even crush, just one point of damage across, two cards from your opponent's hand. And then to add the last point of just screw you, don't do anything, don't even try to play the game to your opponent, you get to pitch the leftover blue ice card to swing with this Winter's Whale to threaten another four damage and a Frostbite taxing whatever little resources they have left. So ultimately, at the end of this turn, you're threatening two cards from your opponent's hand at random at the bottom of their deck, and then a Frostbite plus 15 damage split across two attacks, which is insane as we saw for the course of the meta where just decks couldn't handle this just this much damage disruption all in one go over the course of one turn so the interaction with oak and old specifically is a big part of why this deck was so successful it's just how powerful these oak and old turns were where you got to present 15 damage the first 11 of it had dominate and if it hit it would really mess up their hands i think it's possible bravo wouldn't have even been particularly good if he didn't have access to this oak and old where this this card like single-handedly would turn games around if you were losing and you got the oak and old turn it could turn like basically any game state around what was most damning to starbo as well ultimately and what lss tried to do to try to at least bring him more in line with a more sustainable meta was as you showed in Indianapolis with the control version of Starbo, he didn't even necessarily have to rely on these over-the-top aggressive or damaging effects. Thanks to the Guardian card pool as a whole, if you know all these other Bravo Star of the Shows are going to be trying to swing these huge over-the-top attacks like these Oak and Holtz, these Crippling Crushes, you still have access to these incredibly powerful defense reactions that are able to soak up all of this damage relatively efficiently and cleanly, especially when combined with your other defensive equipment tools like Crown of Seeds, Stalagmite, Rampart, to cover up every single last point of these Oak and Olds or prevent getting crushed from these Crippling Crushes or other crush effects. Yeah, that's another thing that Bravo had in his toolbox is both the staunch response and turn timber are both very, very powerful defense reactions that before Starvo came into the sun, came into the show. Before Bravo stole the show. Before Bravo stole the show. These cards did not actually see that much play because, well, they were great on rate. They just weren't these big attacks that you really needed to cover up with these defense reactions. But when Bravo was such a big part of the metagame, you could play turn timber and play staunch response as these just like extremely powerful, efficient defense reactions that on top of just being a great raid on them, they would also cover up these pretty impactful on hits like the Oak and Old or the Spinal Crush or the Crippling Crush. And then, so in an attempt to make Bravo Star of the Show be a little bit more one-dimensional, take away some of its defensive value, LSS decided to put Autumn's Touch on the suspended list so that instead of ac having access to these nine copies of Autumn's Touch that all these Bravo Star of the Shows were playing, they had to supplement it with Evergreens or Breakgrounds. So essentially losing that one point of defensive value across these nine cards, which is ultimately, as we saw, not really enough of a nerf in order to mitigate what this hero is doing overall. It definitely toned him down a little bit. We ended up seeing Chain win the Pro Tour, and we saw several other decks that did well, like a Briar made top eight. Um, Yuki had a good run with Lexi. Starvo didn't dominate the Pro Tour. He definitely put up a good showing and did quite well, but it was the most played deck and it didn't have a disproportionately good conversion rate. However, ultimately he did win the calling that weekend and still the more aggressive or casino builds with the deck still ultimately function just fine and were still enough of a threat and a force in the meta to get him across this living legend line now. So away he shall go once 
Uprising releases. So what, if any, ways did decks try to even attempt to fight against this onslaught of offensive and defensive capabilities that Bravo brought to the table? So to fight the offensive ones, people turned towards these big heavy defense reactions. The most commonly played one was Red Unmovable, which from Arsenal gave you eight defense. And then if you combine that with a three block from your hand, you could cover up Oak and Old or Crippling Crush, even with the Starvo ability. The other way that I think only Prism specifically could do this, but she would look to basically ignore these powerful odd hits that Bravo could do with Oak and Old Crippling Crush and Spinal Crush, and basically say, I'm not going to care about them. So if she would have to discard several cards from her hand, instead she would spend those resources on the Bravo's turn to play one of her instant auras. Right, that makes sense. It just being able to play the game at instant speed mitigates the discard effects because you don't need to have the cards on your turn. You can just play them whenever is most reasonable for you. So that's also to an extent why I feel like a deck like Kano also was viable into... Bravo started the show as well once he was toned down a little bit, where he also had the exact same capability to just present this massive amount of damage at instant speed in response to some of these more punishing on-hit effects. Yeah, that's a very good point about Kino. With his ability and Storm Striders, they both let him play pretty well on the opponent's turn, on the turns that he wanted to, or on the turns where if he didn't, he would lose his whole hand. So, so you mentioned the defensive ways that decks try to adapt. What are, what are the offensive ways that decks try to adapt? So the offensive ways, basically I don't think there were any aggro decks that saw a lot of success against the more controlling versions of Bravo. The more aggressive versions of Bravo would just slow down and try to play more of the same game as the defensive ones, but just have a higher consistency on their Starbo activation. So they would give up a little bit of consistency and play the big defense reactions back. And then they would just have, basically they would hit the Starbo ability more often in the first cycle. And they could still do the same thing that the control decks did of pitch stacking the the big powerful turns. And I think ultimately what was surprisingly not effective was disruption in the face of disruption. And what I mean by that is some decks try to turn to their own pummel effects or hand disruption effects in order to prevent Bravo from having these three elemental cards in his hand. Or there were effects that Room Blades had with Consuming Volition, where if they've dealt Arcane Damage this turn, they could rip a card from their opponent's hand if it hits. And none of these abilities or attempts at disruption ultimately mattered all that much because of Bravo's Star of the Show ability to also swing and play this more defensive position, where when your opponent was presenting these you know, quote, disruptive, unquote, effects. They still have the ability to to manage it, mitigate it through their defensive capabilities. And then once your opponent stopped presenting some of these handful of disruptive effects, they just went right back trucking along to swinging their big, dumb, go-again-dominate attacks. So (laughs) there was just this lack of ability for Dex to disrupt Bravo Star of the Show the same way that he was disrupting them. Uh, Another way that the decks got around Bravo's defensive abilities is specifically Prism could build up this board state of auras that if Bravo is not threatening your life total, you just get so much time to set up a bunch of auras, set up these uh, spectral shields, and just pressure in a lot of damage over many different sources that it's just going to keep building up and building up and become an overwhelming force. And a defensive deck can't really defend against so many different sources of damage, so the only way to get through that is either killing Prism or killing all the auras. So that was another way that decks look to fight the Bravo deck. So now that Bravo is going to rotate out and 
become living legend once Uprising releases? What hole in the metagame or vacuum will be created once he's gone? We're losing our premier defensive deck. Bravo was by far the best defensive deck. It had such a strong late game with its activated ability that if it could absorb enough of the damage and get to its second cycle, it had incredibly powerful second cycles. So I expect that we'll see some new defensive heroes rise back up. Like, I think we'll probably see the return of Oldheim and maybe speculation a little bit, but we might also see an Icelander take on a more controlling role. I would actually argue against that point a little bit where Bravo wasn't the best defensive deck in the meta. I still think Oldheim was the default best. If you're just looking to block, 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 do nothing else but play defense. Old Time still did that better. However, the issue was once your opponent sits down across from you playing Old Time, they know what you're doing. There's no aggressive version of Old Time where they are worried about dying to massive on hits or just getting outraced in this game. So that allowed them to know exactly how they should sideboard, what effects they're going to need in this game, and what they're going to be doing from turn one. One of the most damning things about Bravo's start of the show, as we've been talking about, between this ability to play offense and defense, was the opponent didn't know necessarily, unless they were sitting across from Michael Hamilton, what version of the deck you were going to be on. It was one of these situations where we saw if Chain was playing unmovables, for instance, into the more fatigue style or control style of Bravo Star of the Show, they actually wound up just being dead cards. They were just cards that did not impact the game at all because the Bravo Star of the Show wasn't looking to kill him through these large on-hit effects turn after turn. However, if the Bravo Star of the Show was this more aggressive version, there were spots where those unmovables could have been very impactful and good cards. So that ability to be both this offensive and defensive deck allowed his defensive abilities to shine more than Oldheim's always defensive all the time abilities could. That's true. That's definitely true that people didn't know what you were what your plan was going into the matchup. Another advantage that Starvo had over Oldheim was if you were playing this more slow grinding game, Starvo is specifically in the Starvo versus Oldheim matchup. When you got to that second cycle, suddenly the Starvo was getting stronger and the Oldheim was probably getting a little bit stronger. His deck was getting a little bit better, but it's nothing compared to Starvo's ability of just like getting plus two dominate and go again on every attack for several turns. And the Oldheim's defense reaction ability wasn't super impactful in the matchup overall. Once the attack's already on the combat chain, threatening the ice react to put a card on top of their deck doesn't ultimately matter as much. Sometimes you could prevent a Winter's Whale swing off of four card hands if they're swinging with a bigger attack, but often was the case where the either version of activating that ability just was not impactful or what you wanted to be doing in the matchup at all. The rate of spending a card for two damage on the Earth React wasn't powerful enough when Starvo was just presenting so much damage on every turn that spending a card for two life, well, you would end up having a larger deck than them at, at, towards the end of the game. It's just the rate wasn't good enough to get you there. You just fell too far behind doing that. And then the Ice React wasn't bad. Keeping them off an Arsenal or a Winner's Will Swing, both of those are definitely worth a card and you are happy to do that, but it just wasn't enough to swing the matchup. Now that Bravo Star of the Show is rotating out, my hope is once again, as I said with Chain, that more mid-range decks can pop up, where once these more polarized rock-paper-scissors formats start dying down, it doesn't necessarily open the space for heroes like Levia and Azalea to necessarily come and be playable in every tournament, but at least have more than just these 
guardian illusionists aggressive rune blade option as we've seen over the past two metas hopefully other classes like warrior or maybe not wizard still well icelander might bring different things to the table or ninjas or something like that that are allowing you to still play offense but still also have the ability to play defensive or just more healthy game options pop up it would be great to see more variety in the plans that people So what do you think of the Living Legend system as a whole, Michael? Do you like it, dislike it? What are your thoughts? So we haven't really gotten to see how it works yet. We haven't seen what it feels like to lose heroes. Currently, I'm very excited to see the format shaken up. I think both Chain and Starvo were extremely powerful and would likely continue to be that way as we explore new formats. And I'm excited that we get to look at the heroes with like fresh eyes instead of being like, well, how are they going to fare up fair against the old best deck? And what's most interesting is what happens to the card pool of the game also shrinks somewhat, where these, not necessarily for, from Bravo Star of the Show rotating out, since there are still elemental heroes that can still play all of those elemental cards, or specifically elemental guardian as well. But with Chain Leaving, there's no more Shadow Rune Blades available to play in Classic Constructed at the moment. I guess you could play Young Chain, people are saying, but I'll cross that bridge when we get there. When Chain rotates out, there's no other Shadow Rune Blade for, that can play Rift Bind or Seeds of Agony now that it's legal again. So it's actually a contraction of the card pool overall, which then pseudo creates its own rotation effect. And I think in the long run, what I'm hoping for out of the Living Legend system is that it creates these kind of dynamic card pools and metagames over time, where eventually there especially once we'll see next season if prism rotates out there's no more light illusionist so all those old auras like ode to wrath and arc light sentinel just won't be played or a factor in game design or not game design or a factor in metagame or deck building anymore you don't have to necessarily think about well how does my deck generate action points to pop these spectra effects you just don't have to consider that for a point in time but then once a new light illusionist comes in and it specifically has to be light illusionist because as we're seeing with this draconic illusionist she just doesn't have access to any of these old illusionist play patterns or abilities because the cards just aren't designed necessarily for her mechanics and her card pool. So that's really, I think, going to be the beauty of Living Legend in the long run is creating and shaping these heroes that are available to play in these metagames in the long run. I hope that it just keeps the game feeling fresh because that's basically what we want. We want the game to always feel fresh, always feel fun. We don't want it to feel stale and stagnant for long periods of time. And if Chain was the best deck for two years or three years or something, I think we would get to that point where the game's feeling, feeling very stale. You're just playing Chain or trying to figure out ways to beat Chain. And with the Living Legend system, we don't have to worry about that. Decks will be the best, but if they really are the best and they're winning everything for several months, then soon they'll be going away and we'll get to try new things out. And that's very exciting. All right. That makes sense. Uh, anything else you want to say about the Living Legend before we sign off then? I think we should check back in on it and see how we're feeling about it as the time goes on. And I have high hopes for the system, but I really haven't experienced the rotation system like this before. And I don't think anyone has. So it's kind of hard to predict how it'll feel and what impacts it'll have on the game. Oh, I'm sure we'll be doing another sunset show for Prism sooner than later, so we'll have a chance to revisit this topic. All right, sounds good. All right, everybody. Well, thanks again for listening this week. We really appreciate it. If you have anything else that you think we overlooked about Chain or Bravo Star of the Show, please feel free to let us know in the comments. And next time when you're playing Flesh and Blood, always remember, mind your manners.